going to the theater, getting a popcorn I shouldn't get, with the icy I shouldn't get, and, and go. He said, tell him about the butter. So you fill it up halfway and be like, let me get it halfway, put butter in that. Bring it back up, put it back on top, put the butter on top. The Lord wanted it that way. I love movies. My favorite movies or shows are when you're in a scene, the movie starts off, you don't know everything yet. An action scene happens, and then it leaves that scene and takes you to the backstory, right? So you go through a scene, you like it, oh, and then it might say 11 years ago, right? Eight months ago. And you go back. And sometimes the backstory is so long that you forgot the first part you saw until it reconnects to the beginning, right? And then it all makes sense, and you're like, oh, okay. That's why he looked at him like that. Okay, I was wondering what was going on. That's why he said that, because you, you did that. Well, the Bible sometimes, to understand the Bible, we kind of have to look at the scene and then leave that scene and get the backstory so that when we come back to the scene, it makes more sense. And so over the course of the next three weeks, we are going to live in Genesis chapter 3. Primarily because there are so many layers as to what's going on. It's much more complicated than just the serpent came, deceived Eve, she bit the fruit, sin comes into the world. It's much more going on than what you and I typically pay attention to. So these next three messages are going to essentially be an epic saga, like Lord of the Rings. But this is going to be called The Underlord Did That Thing. <laughs> Part one is going to answer this question today. When did Satan fall? When did he actually fall? Now, many of us have either I've believed, you've believed, whether you read it, heard a credible pastor theologian say it. I know I've said this to some degree, but the sentiment that many people have is something like this. Before creation, before the foundation of the world was created, Satan was in a war with God, cast down the earth, with the third of the angels, and he was there waiting. And then God creates the earth, and then that's why he's there to tempt Adam and Eve. That's sort of how we understand it. Whether we've been directly taught that or we just come to that conclusion. But this idea that in some war in heaven, Satan was cast out and was already there to tempt Adam and Eve. Now, many people get that sentiment from a passage like this in Luke chapter 10. This is a passage where Jesus sends out 72 disciples to cast out demons and to preach the gospel. And they come back excited. 
And they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I thought it was interesting, and we'll come back to this scene later. Not today, but later in the series. But I think it's interesting that what Jesus says is, don't be excited because you cast out demons. He said, don't be excited because you have this gift, this power that I've given you. He said, be excited that you're saved. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But that's a different, that's not today's point. But here's what Jesus says when they first come back and say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Luke 10 says this, beginning in verse 17. So the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So people interpret, they're like, oh, he was, he was cast down. Revelation 12, passage we know, we've looked at already, and we'll return later on in this series. Beginning of verse 7, it says, Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels, fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan. So he's connecting that dragon to Genesis 3, the ancient serpent. We call the devil, we call Satan. And he says, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a voice saying in heaven, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses him day and night before our God. So many people take these two passages and say, Satan was cast out of heaven, which it does say that. But it doesn't say when. I mean, if we follow this passage chronologically, it looks like the war in heaven happened after the birth of Christ. If we were to try to interpret that literally. And we would say that because we know later on in the New Testament, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, if the rulers of this age knew what was going to happen, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory, which means the demons did not know exactly what Jesus was going to do and didn't know that killing him would actually be what God wanted. So we get this impression that Adam and Eve were cast, that Adam and Eve were there after Satan was cast down before then, then he deceives Adam and Eve. Now, some people believe the rebellion happened between the seven days of creation, the six days, and then before the garden. I want to offer a different perspective, one that I intend to make a case biblically for. Now, before I say that, remember what we're doing in the series. This is the supernatural storyline of the Bible. And the point that we're looking at the Bible through the lens of God explaining to his people initially, the Israelites of Exodus, explaining to them how all things came into being. They were under Egyptian control through slavery. They had Egyptian theology. Everything they knew about the world, for the most part, came from false realities, from cosmic superpowers of evil. So God is explaining throughout the Bible, let me tell you what really happened. This is how we're looking at it. When we started this series, I said that we're going to, at times, 
and this happens most cases, when you preach, you're either going to say things that are likely or literal or both. So literal, well, this is what the Bible actually says. It's right here. Anybody can read it. Be a Berean, right? Likely, it might not be clear, but this is what I think because what the Bible says. Even though the Bible doesn't exactly say this, it's likely because it does say this. Remember, we are free to speculate about what the Bible does not say clearly as long as we don't contradict what it does say clearly. Here's what I want to offer as a thought to consider today. That Satan's first attempt at the throne, his first coup, did not happen in a war in heaven, but was actually the Garden of Eden. That was his attempt to overthrow God's throne. And it didn't happen before, and then he got cast down to earth, but it was then, that that was the first time that Satan played his hand. There was no war in heaven prior to that. Now, let me be clear. No one can definitely say when Satan was kicked out of heaven because the Bible does not definitively say when. We know that he was, and in some cases that's good enough. It's evil happened. When it happened doesn't matter, but I, I, I think it does. I think it's important to at least, even if we're wrong, have some framework as to when this happened. Because if I'm right, then this is going to open and unlock the doors of something really serious that we'll get to later, if I'm right. And if I'm wrong, then we have a much fuller backstory to Genesis 3 and we can still process what's being said that is obvious. So let's go to the opening scene of this movie. This one is called, When Did Satan Fall? When did he rebel? Genesis 3. We're going to start here, but we will not stay here. And I quote, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the tree of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. So here's what happens because I know where we're going. There's stuff I want to comment on right now that I can't because that's next week. But I'll say this. Let's continue to read. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for fruit, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was, the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took of his fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. From the eyes of both, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid 
because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? I love when God asks these questions like, I'm not sure what happened. Like, what, it's almost like, it's like, let me ask, what happened? It's like, man, he was watching the whole thing. Knew it before it happened. Like, I'm going to do this. They're going to do this and do that. I'm going to ask them this and that. And so he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, the man said, the woman you gave me to be with me. So see, even before sin was in the world, conflict was looming, right? He's blaming his wife. Already. He said, she ate the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Have you ever wondered why did God curse a serpent? It was like a reptile that we won't find out next week. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have done this, to the voice, to listen to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. Mm. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for, dust you are, for you are dust, and dust you shall return. And the man called his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like us, knowing good and evil. Now let, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever in sin, mind you. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So here's the scene. We won't stay here, but it's important we have the scene in our minds. I want to make a case that Satan's first attempt at the throne was not in heaven, but was right here. This is where he first played his hand. First piece of, first thought I'd have you consider. Was Satan cast down to earth before Adam and Eve, before creation? I say no. Here's why. In chapter 1 of Genesis, there is a phrase that is used for each day that is a theme for how God wanted all people to understand how he felt about creation. In Genesis 1, it says this, beginning in verse 1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. There is a theme phrase in each day that helps us understand how God saw that day. And the phrase is, it was good. God saw that it was good. 
So verse 1, 4, he made the light. It was good. You get to 110, he makes the land and the seas, and he saw that it was good. 112, not the singing group from back, for those of you who are old enough to remember. I know where some of y'all went. He makes the plants and veggies. Says it's good. In 118, he makes the sun and the moon. And he says it's good. In verse 21 of chapter 1 of Genesis, he makes the sea and the sky animals, birds and fish, and says it was good. On 125, he makes animals on the land. Says it's good. And then you get to 131, and he, he says this. And God saw that everything he made, God saw that everything that he had made, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the, next, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, going into chapter 2, and all the host of them. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation that he said was very good. Now, I could be wrong, right? But I find it difficult to imagine that Satan, God's arch nemesis, who just went to war with him in heaven with a third of the angels, and he cast them down to earth, is then creating the earth and thinking, it's good. It's very good. This is good. With the devil there, knowing that he just tried to oppose God, God cast him down to half earth, and then he's been saying, yeah, this is good. <laughs> like the devil's just going to be like, yeah, this is nice, Lord. I, I mean, <laughs> I would have probably put this over here, but. And then he rests on the seventh day. It was so good the first six days that he rested. Like, I'm, this is good. I'm going to make this day holy because everything I made before was good, but the devil's down there, though, with a third of the angels. I could be wrong, but it's unlikely. It's unlikely that God would see that as good and the devil's there already. I don't think so, but I could be wrong, but I'm not. <laughs> Second reason why I don't think Satan was cast down to earth before creation. Here's what we learn from the book of Job. In Job 38, this is where God is addressing Job. So even though God allowed this suffering to happen in Job's life, and he has these four friends that are trying to tell him and his wife, like, you know, curse God and die. And, and then God listens to all this for some time. And then he said, all right, let me say something. And in verse 4, here's what God says to, to Job, and we learn a little bit more about what happened in creation. This is what he says. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Again, it sounds like, man, God's being mean. But when you do all this complaining about God, every once in a while, I got to be like, man, this is like when you was little, when your parents would be like, I brought you in this world, I'll take you out. You better stop. <laughs> I know some of y'all didn't have that. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. But there was some of us that was like, that was normal. That <laughs> was normal for some of us. Some of y'all were like, I don't know what they taught. My mom never said it to me. Nah. Some of us knew what was going on. 
He said, who, verse 5, who determined this measurement? Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it? In verse 6, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid this cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of glory, all the sons of God shouted for joy? So here we're getting some background to what happened at creation. And here's what it tells us in verse 7. When God was making the earth and everything in the natural universe, the angels were there praising God for the good of creation. This language, the morning star sang, it wasn't talking about like Orion and them, the stars that we look at, they were up there like, oh. <laughs> the worst singer in here probably sings better than them. They don't have mouths, they're not singing. Sons of God is a, is a common name for angels. It's the, one of the most common names in the Bible for angels. And it says they shouted for joy. So when God is creating, sons of God, all the angels, all the created beings that we don't see, won't see yet, all of them are watching this happen and they're praising God. That's what the Bible tells us. This commentator on this passage says this, the sons of God who celebrate the construction of the earth are presumably the entire entourage of the divine court. In some contexts, these heavenly beings are identified with natural phenomena such as wind and fire, like in Psalm 104. Here the parallelism of the verse suggests that they are considered one with the stars. The allusion to stars, however, may have its roots in astral mythology. This is the supernatural stuff, right, storyline stuff. But there's cosmic powers of evil created this sort of astral mythology in these gods. And they said the worship of astral deities was common in the ancient Near East and persisted in Israel for centuries, which is why I believe God uses his language. He's using the language that these false gods use and saying, no, 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 this is about me. This is about them. It says here, however, the polemical aspect is suppressed and the focus lies on the participation of the celestial court in the celebration of Earth's creation in a manner similar to its participation in the divine decision to create human beings. So what he's saying is the divine council, all the divine beings are there celebrating in the creation just like they were there celebrating when God said, let's make man in our own image. Saying this is a divine council, all the divine beings are there. Guess who else is there? Satan. He's created by God. He's an angel or some sort of angelic being. This means that Satan was among the angels shouting for joy at creation. He's not, as far as we know, it's not like Satan is over there and everybody, he, everybody else is celebrating. He's like, man, this ain't that serious. I could have done that. Maybe, but we have to add a lot to that to make that happen. It says, look, this is, this is a celebration. Let me say this. I, there's something about earth that I don't think we understand. To us, earth, because it's where we live, it's a natural world, is separate from heaven. Two different places, two different kingdoms. And that's true on one level. But initially, earth 
was a further expansion of the kingdom. It wasn't a lower place. It was an expansion of God's kingdom. When God was making the earth and said, let us make man in our own image, it was God saying, I'm going to create another place where we will intersect. But instead of the people, the divine council being, you know, uh, angels and other types of, they're going to be human beings. That's why I said, let's make man in our own image and then let him rule over the earth. In the same way that you all are up here doing this, I'm going to create another kingdom where the people that will be doing that will be down there and we'll, we'll meet. Earth was not just this terrible place. And let me give you some evidence for this. In 2 Peter 3, listen to what he says, beginning in verse 11. He's, I'm, just going, he's going, I'm jumping into the conversation. I'm not going to explain the context. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in, li- in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Revelation 21.1 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. But this is the place where sin happens, where most of the rejection of God happens. Why keep the earth? Why not destroy it? Why make a new earth? Because to God and to the angels watching it, they understood that the earth is a functional part of the kingdom of God. For God to destroy the earth because of sin would be to destroy part of his kingdom. But the people who were going to govern it were not supernatural beings. They were human beings. God allowed humanity to participate in the council of how things go. This is why God creates the animals in the garden and lets Adam name them. God doesn't have a problem saying, I delegate. You guys can do this. We know we've looked at it. We'll see more in this series how God delegates to angels crazy responsibilities. Same thing with human beings. I'm going to create this world. This is my kingdom but you all are going to manage it. You'll interact with me, other divine beings. That's why he said, let us make man in our own image. So you all know that these are our people. They like us. The center of creation was Eden, the garden of God, which we heard last week, where heaven and earth meet. Satan was rejoicing when this happened. He didn't make a coup in some unseen war and then get cast out into heaven and deceive Adam and Eve. He made his first attempt at the throne because in Satan's mind and the angels, earth is also God's throne. This was his first attempt. Now let's go to what I think is happening behind the scenes, what the Bible tells us. Here's what led to the revolt against God. And we're going to answer this. We're going to look at, well, who is God talking to? 
there's three passages, two in one chapter, Ezekiel 28, and then one in Isaiah 14. We're going to read these briefly and then answer, who is God talking to? Who is he talking to? Ezekiel 28, verses 1 and 2 says this. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am God, I sit in the seat of God of the gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. Seems pretty obvious who he's talking to. Then you get down the same chapter, but a different, a different address. Beginning in verse 12, God says this, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre. So first, verse 1, he was the prince of Tyre. Then he said the king of Tyre here. All right, say to him, thus the Lord, says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. I wonder what that would look like on a ring, carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were, the, you were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I expose you before kings to feast their eyes on you. Who's he talking to? The king of Tyre. Isaiah 14, 12 through 14 says this. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the reaches of the far north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So who is he talking to, talking about? Now, I'll be honest. I, I think Isaiah 14, the only reason why people think it's Satan is because they say, oh, day star, son of dawn. And because in the Latin, Satan is, trans, is Lucifer. Lucifer means light. So they think, okay, son of dawn. I actually think this could be just a proud dude thinking, I'm a god and going to rise to the heights of God. But many commentators think God is speaking to a man only and for good reason. I mean, it says in Ezekiel 28, that's where the passage starts. It says, you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seats of God in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man. It's the beginning of Ezekiel 28. Many commentators think he's speaking to a man, and for good reasons. Good, solid theologians that think that. I, I, just, I just don't. I don't think that. And I'm not saying because I'm a better theologian. I just don't think. I don't think that's what the text is saying. Let me give you a couple reasons why. I think God is talking to a man, definitely, but, and Satan. 
One, we know from Genesis 3, it is not unusual for God to address a person or something and then the supernatural entity behind it. That's why he says to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed above all livestock, which we're like, why would he do that? Next week. It's not unusual for God to do that. To talk to and then the supernatural entity behind it. But here are other reasons why I think he's talking to Satan, a man and Satan. And not every verse is to both. Some verses are to the man, and then it all of a sudden switches. God does this a lot. We saw this in, in Christmas where, the, where when it said uh, Joseph was given a vision to go to Egypt, right, and take Jesus to Egypt because Herod was going to try to kill him. And then it said, and it fulfilled the prophecy out of Egypt, I called my son. And then you look at the original context of Hosea 11.1, 1, and there's no way that you would get, oh, this was about Jesus. This obscure phrase that God says was actually about Jesus. So it's God always is saying things that mean one thing in, in one level, but are meaning something else entirely as well. This is not unusual for God to communicate this way. I could give you other examples, but I'm already behind on time. One reason from this Ezekiel 28, 12 through 17, or this, this whole passage, is what I said, the distinction between prince and king. Now, these terms are used interchangeably in the book of Ezekiel, but, the, but I think the distinction is not linguistic, but intrinsic. As I've said, supernatural and natural, they are intrinsically linked. While God gives us, all of us, and mankind credit for our own decisions to sin, it's never separated from supernatural realities. Listen to 2 Timothy 2, 23 through 36. 23 through 26. This changed, this is one of the verses that changed the way I, the way I relate to people, particularly those who are not Christians. Because we live in an era where Everyone is so self-righteous towards people who are not Christians. You're calling out everything they do. And it's like, and I read this passage, and I'm like, man, Lord, forgive me for doing that. This is what he says, 2 Timothy 2, beginning of verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but, be, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Listen to this. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. People who don't believe in Jesus have way more problems than they agree with a sinful lifestyle. They have been taken captive to do the devil's will. And God's saying the way you interact with them may change that perspective. I think prince and king are addressing the same person. But prince, God is addressing the human, and king, he's addressing Satan, the one who takes the human captive to do his will. Here's another reason why, with the same thing. We saw in Ezekiel 28, verse 1, or verse 2, that he says, because your heart is proud, you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of God's, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man. 
and know God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. So he tells us, you're just a man. In Ezekiel 28, 1 through 10. But then when he addresses the king, he says nothing about you being a man. He says nothing about you being, about him being a man. Oof, I could say a lot more right now. Let's keep going. Another reason why, because the language of created versus born. In verse 13, he says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, Topaz, oh, I'm not going to name all of them right now. <laughs> he says, on the day that you were created, they were prepared. If you take whatever Bible kind of um, app that you use, like Logos or some type of reference Bible app, and you type in the word created, apart from talking about Adam and Eve, you will be hard-pressed to find that word used to talk about another individual. Usually when the word created is used, it talks about an uh, 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 ethnicity of people. You created the Jews. You created these wonderful things. You created this. Usually when it talks about a person that was created, it talks about Adam because Adam was created. But when the Bible is talking to a man, other people, about human beings, it says that they were born. It doesn't use the word created. Now, I'm sure there's a, I've looked at a ton of references. I haven't found one yet. I'm sure I missed one. Someone will be like, Pastor Kurt, have you seen this passage? Thank you. But the overwhelming majority of these this language, when created is used, is not talking about a human being, unless it's talking about Adam. God usually says you were born. But here, when he's addressing the king, this man, he says you were created. And that not only that, when you were created, you were in Eden, the garden of God, and all these stones were created when you were created. God didn't even do that for Jesus. I could be wrong, though. Could be wrong. Lastly, or almost lastly, what man do we know of in the Bible is called a guardian cherub or a signet of perfection? Don't take my word for it. Look in your Bibles. Check and see where else you see that language used. You do not have to believe me. Check for yourself. If you have a credible Bible, not the Jefferson Bible, one of them ones where they rip all this stuff out, a credible translation, you will not find this language used to describe a man. Now, some people think this is describing Adam. No, sir. No, sir. Now, some theologians think that Satan was an archangel like Gabriel and Michael. They think that those were the three highest archangels. Three highest ranking angels, Satan, Gabriel, and Michael. So it makes sense that when people think, oh, a third of the angels were cast out of heaven, it makes sense because if Satan was one of the three archangels, then all his angels left, a third of the angels left. That would make sense if that were true. And then Revelation 12 would make sense. Now a war arose in heaven. Verse 7, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. And he was defeated. Now we're going to come back to this, but I'm going to say this right now. Isn't it crazy that 
Satan is fighting against another archangel. He's not fighting with God. He's fighting with Michael, and he lost. What you think God's going to do when he shows up like my turn? He's too small. Too small. Another one, the language of casting out. I cast you out. You know, now the scriptures tell us that Adam and Eve were taken out of the garden, but it's not like he left Satan there like, are you trying to get something to eat after this another day? Like, (laughs) Satan was kicked out of the garden as well. It's not like he hung out there like, okay, well, God, would you, I mean, you know, no, he was gone. Just language. For these reasons, among others, I'm convinced that God is talking to Satan. But now the question, and lastly, is, well, what is God talking about? What is he talking about when he describes you were in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone was your covering, and he says you were anointed cherub, and I placed you on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walked, and you were blameless until unrighteous. What is he talking about? In this passage in Ezekiel 28, God's describing three things, where it happened, what made it happen, and the consequences for it happening. So where it happened, we see two locations. Two locations. The Garden of Eden, or the Garden of God, and the Holy Mountain of God. Now, if you believe that there was a war in heaven prior to Satan coming to earth and he was cast on the earth, then you will see the Garden of Eden and the Holy Mountain of God as two separate locations. So the holy mountain of God is what he tried to go after. He was cast down from, and then Eden is sort of where he landed. And then I do think it's ironic, though, that God would place him in Eden where his presence is right there, right? If Eden is the presence of God and then the garden is right to the east of Eden, God would cast Satan in close proximity to where he... I don't don't want to say that anymore. If you think that this is describing a supernatural realm and these two locations are different, but I would say many theologians, I'm included, think that Eden was on a mountain as it represented the place where heaven and earth met. We talked about this last week briefly. Let me read to you an excerpt from crossway.org who makes the ESV Bible and a ton of other Christian books that many of you have read. This is what they say. The concept of God living on a holy mountain is a significant theme in the Old Testament. However, this same theme frames the entire Bible. It begins with the Garden of Eden in Genesis and ends with New Jerusalem in Revelation. In Genesis, the elevated location of the Garden of Eden is indicated by the fact that a single river flows out of Eden before dividing to become four rivers. Genesis 2, 10 through 14 provides a short enigmatic description of these rivers. While there is some uncertainty about the identity of all four rivers, the description implies that the Garden of Eden occupies the raised position in the middle of the world. In keeping with this picture, the prophet Ezekiel designates Eden as both the Garden of God and the Holy Mountain of God. Leaping to the New Testament, the concept of a holy mountain city is linked to New Jerusalem. The author of Hebrews passionately exhorts his readers to remain faithful to the new covenant inaugurated by Jesus Christ rather than 
returning to the older covenant associated with Mount Sinai. It's where God met Moses. In doing so, he makes a brief but noteworthy comment. For you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. A similar picture is found in the book of Revelation. In, in chapter 21, the apostle John records that an angel carried him away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed him the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. In both contexts, the mountain location of New Jerusalem resonates with the pattern found in the Old Testament. God dwells in a holy mountain city, and those who dwell with him must be holy in order to live within the exalted metropolis, metropolis. So they think that it is the pattern for God's presence to be on a mountain and that Eden was on that mountain and is synonymous with the holy mountain of God. Because at that point in creation, what other mountain would have been holy? What would be the holy mountain of God when he was creating? It's going to be wherever God is, right? God didn't create human beings far away from him, but in close proximity. So he creates this garden and puts them in the garden right next to him. And God, there's a theme that resonates through the Bible. Noah. The ark rests on top of Mount Ararat. Rest there. Abraham takes Isaac to Mount Moriah. Moses meets God in Mount Sinai. Jesus, the transfiguration, Mount Hermon. Jesus being crucified on Golgotha. He walked up a hill. Even Jesus being crucified, being lifted up. This idea that the presence of God is always lifted up. And when heaven and earth meet, it's usually on a mountain. So all of the language about a mountain of God, Mount Zion and all these places represent the reality that when God meets with people, his presence is always on a mountain, except for the Ark of the Covenant and then in Jesus himself. These are all moments where heaven and earth meet, and they are all on earth. And because earth is a functional part of God's kingdom, it wasn't a separate kingdom. It was, this is where Satan chose to start his rebellion. Now, again, wasn't there. When Satan was watching this, remember it said you were proud your beauty. Satan's watching this, watching everything be created. He's rejoicing. And God creates Adam and Eve and says, you're going to rule down here. The way that the verses in Ezekiel play out in Isaiah, it almost is like, like, you could almost be like, man, why do they get to rule down there? Why do they get to have that and I don't? I can't prove that that happened, but I'm visual, and I can imagine that based on the scriptures. One more reason why I think it was Satan's attempt at overthrowing the kingdom of God was on earth and not in 
some unseen realm. It's because of what Satan says to Jesus in Luke chapter 4 when he's tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Beginning of verse 5, here's what it says. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall not worship the Lord your God. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Let's think about this temptation that Satan's doing. First of all, Satan's given a power that we don't see him have at any other point in the Bible, which is the ability to show Jesus all the kingdoms in the world at a moment's, a moment of time. That means when Jesus was in the wilderness tempted and Satan shows him, that's a God-like power, that's, that's omnipotence, omnipresence. That he's given the ability to tempt Jesus and show him all the kingdoms of the world this one time. The fact that that's even a temptation for Christ tells you of its significance. Why would you tempt Christ with something that he's not going to want anyway? You ever had somebody, you ever had somebody tell me, hey, listen, if you don't eat all them peas and lima beans, then you, I'd be like, okay, so? <laughs> I'm not tempted by that. I'm going to take away your peas and lima beans, please. <laughs> My mom is probably watching, and she told y'all if I say something wrong, you can call her. But this is true. Ma, remember when you used to give us all the lima beans and peas? We would put them in our mouth and then grab a paper towel and wipe our mouth and put all of them in that. And then lay that thing up in the trash. We didn't have pets, so we couldn't give it to the dog. So we learned technique. Are you done? Yep. I'm, uh, and we'd be mad because I missed too. Like, oh, man. This is a real temptation. How could this be a temptation to the Son of God if the kingdoms of the world were in somehow connected to the holiness of God and the authority of God? This is not a real temptation if earth doesn't matter. The reality of the one who rules it is given an authority? For what if the earth is not, if only it's only in heaven that it matters? No, Satan understood, I've taken over. He said, it's been delivered to me, right? I rule here. And in Satan's mind, that's how he's overthrowing the kingdom of God. I rule in this kingdom. He's called the prince of the earth. He says, all this authority will be given, is given to me and I'll give it to you. What would Satan offer him that for? This authority is not really a temptation unless it represents God's kingdom as well. And he says this. It says, it says this, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment's time. And he said to him, I will give you all the authority and their glory. Glory. God, even though this world is corrupted by sin and it looks nothing like the way God intended it to be, 
it's still a functional part of the kingdom of God. It's not up there and down here. Yeah, in the physical realm it is. But the earth matters because God created it as a part of an expansion of his kingdom. This is why there'll be a new heaven and a new earth and they'll all meet together. The city will come down and stretch from Colorado to Mexico. It'll be right here on the earth. We're not going somewhere else. We're staying here. Satan understands the kingdom of God initially represented an extension of the kingdom of heaven. And the holy mountain of God was not some place in the third heaven. It wasn't the revelation for throne room of God. God's presence was on a mountain as he did throughout the New Testament, the Old Testament to the New Testament. I don't think Satan and the angels saw these as two different places. Satan saw this as the same thing, but down here. So if I can take over down here, then I am overthrowing God's authority in his kingdom. Undoing God's authority on earth specifically. I mean, think about what he did. He didn't, he didn't like just go around slaughtering animals. He deceived the pinnacle of God's creation. Not even angels are described as being made in the image of God. I think that's partially why he was offended and jealous and angry. As beautiful as he was, the signet of perfection, he's not considered to be in the, like the, the image of God. So Satan corrupts the pinnacle of God's creation on earth. And then says, this is my kingdom. I took it from you. This was the first attempt at his rebellion. The earth is way more significant than we give it credit for. We think we're going to heaven and leaving the earth behind. And the Bible says, no, I'm going to actually destroy the heaven that's there and the earth that's there and make a new heaven and a new earth. And all of us will be right there. Because the earth is a part of the functioning kingdom of God. It's where heaven, where God, where the, the supernatural realm and the natural realm meet and the presence of God was there. And so Satan, because if he really is the guardian cherub, the signet of perfection, blameless, then why wouldn't he be allowed to go into the garden? Why would he not be? Up to that point, he hasn't done anything evil. Not just because God knows what's going to happen. We'll talk about this next week. Just because God knows it's going to happen doesn't mean he's going to stop everything. But up to that point, Satan hadn't done anything yet. So he was allowed to come into the garden and interact with Adam and Eve. This is the location, Eden, I believe, is the location of Satan's first rebellion. And I could be wrong, but if I'm right, if I'm right, which I think I am, this is going to explain a significant reality. And we're going to see in the next few weeks. It's going to explain a significant reality. If this, the Garden of Eden, is Satan's first attempt at a coup. Now that we have the backstory, we return back to the scene of the greatest heist in the history of the universe. 
we'll pick up there next week. Let's pray. Father, as I pray to you before I talk today, and as I, you know me as I talk with you throughout the days, and especially when working on these messages, you know that my desire is not to draw attention to me or connections I make or to intentionally mislead at all. I believe that, I do believe that it's important because I think your word paints a good picture. And while there are solid people who believe, who could argue with great points differently from mine, this is just where I've come to believe. But you know I've come to believe this by your grace and through praying to you and wrestling with it, not just me trying to prove a point. So, Lord, if I'm wrong in what I'm saying, then may it not count against me or affect anyone here as we continue to be cultivate a endless fascination with your word. But, Lord, if I'm right, then help me just build on this. As you have the next couple sermons, I feel like you've already made it clear where I should go. Let it build on this reality. And while ultimately the question is not important of when did he rebel, ultimately we know that he did when to some degree is incidental. I do think, Lord, you are telling us things that you want us to know that I think are beneficial if we believe them to be true. So I thank you for your grace, Lord. Thank you for your word. I pray that everyone who's listening is processing, thinking. Lord, I pray that they would Go double back and look up all of the stuff for themselves. May no one in this room trust any one man's opinion that they cannot prove themselves in the Bible. That includes me. So I thank you for this opportunity. Thank you that you guided me and gave me this responsibility. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Remember that you can text your questions to 240-623-8076. Also remember that once we finish Q&A, Pastor Kurt will lead us in taking communion. So if you have not gotten that, please do so now. But we do have <clears throat> have a question here. Um, and uh, this person says that uh, in their understanding of the last uh, few preachings, um, wasn't darkness considered bad? Um, because God said, let there be light, and he separated the light from the darkness. So could you elaborate on that in light of your teaching today about there not being anything, you know, bad? Well, darkness, so remember that God is, so remember that the Bible was written after the Exodus, roughly around 1446 B.C. So that's 750 years since the Tower of Babel, from Genesis 11 to Exodus 20, 750 years, roughly in human years, where God did not give any explanation of his word, but all of the people that he had called Israelites to come from Abraham, they, were, they believed a theology that wasn't true. So their theology had a creation narrative of this abyss and this water and this darkness. And so the purpose of Genesis 1 and the beginning of it and God there and the darkness there and his spirit hovering over the waters, the Jews who heard that would have been in awe because those waters, the primordial waters and the, the primeval waters and the, his spirit hovering over it was demonstrating an authority over what they understood darkness and evil to be. 
So it doesn't in any way contradict with what I'm saying. Now, we're talking about God is explaining this is how evil began. This is who did it, where it happened, what his heart motive was, and this is what's happening. So, yeah, darkness does often represent the opposite of the presence of God. I mean, hell is called outer darkness throughout the Bible. But this, this, this is just, Genesis 1 is just God. All of it really is God explaining this is who created the world, and this is how it went. It got corrupt, and these are the things that happened. So there's no real difference or any contradiction. Not that the person said that, but if you're thinking that there's no, these are two different things almost, where Genesis 1 is just describing God saying, it's not it's who made the earth. He's telling the Israelites, your God that you worship, that brought you out of Egypt, that's who made the earth. Let me explain to you how, how I did it. And the, and the other God, and you'll see this when we get to the, oh, I can't wait till we get to the plagues. When we get to the plagues, there's some stuff that God says in those chapters that make it clear that you're too small, Satan. So, um, as you know, I have a new phone. And last week I had issues getting questions on time. So, if anyone in this room has submitted a question. I do not see it right now. So could you raise your hand? Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Take the mic, Brady. Just take the mic. You can just do it. <laughs> All right. Give me a second. Yep. All right, uh, during the fall scene, why didn't God just obliterate Satan from existence rather than curse him and allow him to continue to rule over the earth from that point on? Uh, why? I mean, obviously, the Bible doesn't tell us why, but I'll give some thoughts over the next two weeks as to why, I think. I'll give some reasons why. I don't think, I don't, I mean, I, uh, I'll, I'll give some thoughts. I'll give some thoughts the next two weeks as to why. Why I think the Lord let Satan stay. I'll, I'll say that. Should I don't want to answer it because I know I'm, what I'm going to say next week. I know where I'm headed. And I don't want to, yeah. Should our understanding of Scripture change because of how much time passes between this fall and the creation of man or you know, how this plays out? That should, should that really be important for us and how we process this? No, I think that's a more scientific question. So I think, I think when we look at the Bible, like well, how much time, how many days, that's more scientific lens. That has no, like, like we have no idea how long it passed from God resting on the seventh to the Garden of Eden scene where it said, we have no idea how long. It could have it been soon, like within a, within a minute's time, or it could have been sometime, right? We just don't know. The Bible is not concerned with like the time sometimes. There are times when it is. It was in the days of this king and this happened and it was this time. The Bible wants you to know this is happening in real time. But in, the, in this scene, it's not real clear when. So it's possible Satan could have rebelled from after God rested until then. But I just think the language in Ezekiel is just different. I think it's specific. I think where and all this stuff. So I, I don't think it changes our understanding. I don't think it does. Some other people may, but I don't think 
the timing of when things happen is more important than what is what happened and what are the consequences and the results of that happening i think are the most important things uh do you think that there are divine beings that god uses for his good that perhaps humans have worshipped is this where you know some mythology or astrology things come from or are there false gods people are in worshiping intentionally working against god If I understand the question, I think, so God created supernatural beings and gave them jurisdiction over humanity. I mean, we see that in Psalm 82. Like for us, we know that there's only one God, the most high God, but God doesn't have a problem addressing these other supernatural beings as Elohim, which is God's. He says it plural. You look at, at Psalm 82, Psalm 89, he's addressing other beings as God, but they're lesser gods. They're not, this is why the distinction, the most high God is used. This is why he uses that as himself, because he's making a distinction. He's not saying they're not gods in the sense they're supernatural beings that God created that eventually wanted to worship themselves. They wanted that worship. And so, and, the, and those supernatural beings that created, we would call those other religions false religions, other religions that have gods that they worship. So yeah, I, I just think that's, I mean, that's stuff that we've laid that foundation, but we'll see that more as we continue on in this series, but I, I totally think that. I think God, but I think God, why God allows this stuff to happen ultimately, we just don't know. I just think that God is not, God's just not threatened by, like, he's not like, you know, he's just not work like, oh, oh no, like, you know. <laughs> it's like, oh man, he's just not threatened. He's not threatened by, by what the enemy does. And I think, I think, and I said this before, and, I, and I'll say this again, and I'll say, show you why I think this. I think God is doing it just to show ultimately the supernatural powers of evil that you, you will not prevail ultimately. You are not stronger than me. I think Satan thought, okay, I'm going to take this kingdom. I'm going to overthrow his kingdom. And then you found out, nah, you didn't. In fact, in fact, since you did this, I'm going to send, uh, this woman's going to give birth to someone who's going to overthrow you in the own kingdom that you thought you established. Now, I'm going ahead too much, though. Y'all don't want that smoke right now. So in uh, kind of wrestling with how do we think about angels and um, these divine beings? Do, th do they have free will? As far as we know, I don't think any beings that God creates, he doesn't give free will to. And in order to have to exercise free will, you have to have options. Like if you can only do this one thing, then you don't really have free will because you can't do anything but that. So this, this goes back to people saying, why would Satan rebel, and why do you think he rebelled, and why would, because God created beings with free will. So then people say, well, how do we know we're not going to sin when we get to heaven if angels can sin? It's like, well, the scripture says, when we see Jesus, we'll be like him. And Jesus doesn't rebel, has no desire to rebel. 
So when we see Jesus, we're not going to have a desire to rebel in heaven because we're going to be like him. And this is why some angels got offended because they don't have that. Remember what Hebrews 2 said? Hebrews 2 said, for it is not angels that God comes to help, but the children of Abraham. When angels sinned, God wasn't like, all right, I tell you what, I'm going to go ahead and take the punishment that y'all deserve, and then I'm going to let, no, he did that for us. They're like, why you, these people are icky. Like, look at them. Like, why you, why you letting, forgiving them? Like, 1 Peter 1, it says angels long to look at it. Like, they're just like, bro, how in the world did this, Azazel and them rebelled, and they in trouble. And these human beings rebel all the time. And God's just forgiving them. It's a different ballgame. It's a lot going on. Some of us get jealous of each other for somebody getting in seasons of life or getting blessings that we don't get. Imagine divine beings being like, wow, you're letting them have all this? You're forgiving them for that? Did you see what this dude just did? You're forgiving him? And my cousin is chained up waiting to be judged? Like, man, this is... Now, I'm sure that conversation doesn't happen in heaven, right? I'm sure that's not happening to heaven. But I'm just saying, like, if you, like, you know, these creatures have free will, and they're looking at this stuff and being like, man, I don't remember you celebrating like that when you made us angels. But you're, like, declaring in front of all of us, let's make man in our own image, according to our likeness. Like, these are, like, lesser human beings. They're weaker than us. They're not as smart as us. They're not as, there's nothing about them that's special. Like, why are you doting over them? I, you know, I, I would be, I'd be offended. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, heck, man. I, I, think, I do think Satan was like, man, I've been, look, man, I was, you know, you made, you made all these carbuncle when I was created. <laughs> Onyx, you made all this, I'm walking in the mountain of God, and you can't let me get it, you know. You know what's interesting? And I'm not making this point, but, I, but, but in the, the, um, the prodigal son, you know how the older brother's like, man, I've been here all this time, and you went, I think that's exactly what Satan was like. But I'm not saying that <laughs> yet. But I think that's exactly what Satan was like. Man, you let, I've been, I've been faithful, I've been doing this, I've been leading the angels, doing, I'm righteous, I'm blameless, I'm beautiful, I'm perfect. Like, look at me, I mean, look at you, how you make, all that. And you're giving the kingdom to them? I think he was like, nah, bro. Nope. I'm going to go down there and deceive them. And he tried to be clever about it. Did God really say? So, nah, you know, try to be clever. It's like, I'm going to deceive them. And when you deceive them, that's why God said to him, because you've done this. But we'll get to that. Do we um, know more about that, what that fall looked like? I mean, we have the, the Genesis 3 passage, but is there more that kind of fills that in to let us know, you know, what? How, was there a long time in that process, or was that immediate falling down, casting out? Mm, I mean, I think Ezekiel 28 fills in some of that process, but and maybe a couple of the passages refer back to, but no, I, I, I don't think we do. I don't think we do. I mean, again, you can speculate and come up with some good stuff, but I think if you speculate, you should have biblical passages to show that, right? Like with you guys, I'll tell you, look, I'm I could be wrong, but here's why I think I'm right. I'm not just saying wild stuff. Like, I just like, okay, if I'm wrong, and I say this to the Lord all the time, Lord, if I'm wrong, you know I think I'm right because you showed me this and because of this. These are the connections that you've given me. So I, so I, but I, so I don't think the Bible is clear. I think 
anyone who talks with clarity on things the Bible isn't clear about, I just, I think it's unwise. I think you, if you qualify, then it's fine. I'll qualify. So listen, I can't prove this, but this is why I think it. I'll qualify that. But I think when you don't, I think that's dangerous. I think it's dangerous on whatever level it is. If the Bible does not, we have to start there. If the Bible does not say it, hmm, okay, it might be a good thought or it might even be your experience. That doesn't make it true, though. Truth, that doesn't make it true. It just means this is what you experienced. This is a, a good connection you made. That may have, and I'm sorry, I could be wrong, but I'm going to show you why I think this way. If I'm wrong, okay. I mean, it's not like the end of the world. I just don't think I'm wrong. At least not on this. So this will be our this will be our last question today. Um, did God want there to be no evil in his, in the world or in His creation, or did He only want the heavenly hosts to know about good and evil? Lord, when we get could you explain? I mean, these are all questions we're going to ask the Lord, right? Like that's going to be a real sitting on Jesus's lap and be like, Jesus, did you know? Um, <laughs> I got something to be doing. I'm just going to be right there. Like, I'm going to be in that long line of, like, man, I got a couple questions. <laughs> but it might not be a line. Jesus might just be like, you could just be walking. He just walk with you. Like, you on your way to work. Hey, Lord, I was wondering, man, why did you, uh, you know, he might just answer those questions. I don't know how he's going to explain things to us. But those are questions that, like, we know what's been revealed, right? We know that at some point, God created divine beings. They understand what holiness is because they're with him. They see him. They're around him. But they're given a free will, which means that it's ca they're capable of desiring something other than God. Now, I think the majority of angels did not rebel. You know what? I, I can't prove this. But you know what I wonder sometimes? I wonder. You know how we'll, like God will ask Adam and Eve, what happened? Where are you? What did you do? Or he'll almost, like when Moses, he says he's going to destroy the Israelites. And then Moses appealed to him and he changes his mind, right? I wonder sometimes if God is so humble that he will give the appearance of letting you make decisions and do things and, like, influencing the what he's doing when he's just chilling. Like, you look at, like, you look, remember that, was that 1 Kings 19 with Ahab? When God gathers the divine counsel and he says, hey, Who's going to deceive Ahab? And the spirit is like, I'll do it. And the Lord says, how are you going to do it? I mean, this is in the Bible. I'm not making this up, right? And then he says, I'm going to send the lying spirits to all of his prophets to deceive him. And the Lord listened and was like, yeah, do that. That's going to work. I think, I, think, I think that the angels that did rebel mistake God's humility for weakness. In the same way that you and I do. We take advantage of the grace of God consistently and expect to be forgiven and still grow. And some of us who don't take ownership of their faith, you don't grow. And some of us think that, well, God is, you know, I can just, like it's a switch, like I can just turn it on whenever, and it doesn't work like that. You sow the habits and patterns, and eventually all of a sudden now, you don't read your Bible that much. You don't come to church. And then all of a sudden now, like, you don't really feel like doing it. And then now your feelings are the authority. And then all it keeps going and going and going. And now you don't even realize why even go to church. Why even? It happens just like that. It's not like you can just be like, all right, I'm going to just chill. And all of a sudden just snap back and do it. That's not how the way God designed us. You sow to the flesh, you'll reap destruction. You sow to the spirit, you'll reap eternal life. 
We do it all the time. We sow to the flesh and expect us to be blessed and on fire for the Lord. You don't spend no time with God all week. No wonder the messages don't matter to you on Sunday. You don't spend no time with the Lord. You don't do nothing that he says do. Binge watch all that stuff all week. No wonder you don't want to serve when you come to church. No wonder you picking apart stuff that's said on Sunday because you're offended. Sometimes you the offense. And that's just the reality. I think we do it all the time. So I think angels do. I think they just, God was just like, yeah, y'all can do that. Yeah, y'all can do that. I'm good with that. Go ahead. You can do that. They was like, man, this dude is just like, I think they, I think they thought that. I, I can't prove that, obviously. But I just think like, man, why would you ask them who's going to, <laughs> why would you say, hey, who's going to take care of this Ahab situation we got? Like, God can't just be like, gone, and then he's just done. He don't even got to say it. He just has to. Remember, remember when Trump, when Trump was president, remember when he said that he dropped this, they called the mother of all bombs. I think he dropped it in Afghanistan. This dude went on national television and said, you know, I was just eating a piece of chocolate cake one day and just thought, let's drop a bomb. I kid you not, you fine. I'm not making this up. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm not making this up. This dude said, I just dropped a bomb, the mother of all bombs on Afghanistan, while I was eating cake. It just came to me with this devil's chocolate cake, right? God could just be like, man, I don't, this dude is, who is, a, who is Ahab? I can wipe him off the face of the earth. But he said, hey, which one of y'all, which one of y'all want to handle this? God just does that. Why is Adam naming all the animals? He's like, go ahead, I'll create them. What do you want to call this? Uh, a raccoon. That's, a, that's an interesting choice, Adam. All right. Why, why raccoon, Adam? I don't know, Lord. There's something about the eyes or something. I don't know. All right. What you gonna, what you gonna call this? An armadillo. What about that? Is that? Well. I think it'll be in the future in a place called Texas, and we'll call it a Texas office. I mean, it's just like, what about this? Uh, a kangaroo. Oh, interesting choice. What do you, you know? He just let them name all these animals, and Adam's just sitting there like, shoot, dog, cat, bird, rat, mouse. A duck-billed platypus at that. I mean, it, you know, God is just always allowing the, his creation to participate with him and I think that happened in heaven. They took it for a weakness, came to earth, and now we got to fight against taking it for a weakness. It's the same thing. So, y'all don't want that. I'll get an email. Is that it? That's it for the questions, Brady? Oh, man, we about to go in. The next two sermons. You know, we, you know what the question we're going to answer next week? Why a serpent? Why a serpent? Why a serpent? Why did God curse a serpent? Why a serpent? How did that work? We're going to look at that thoroughly next week. Oh, I was about to slip and say something. Let me, let me go into, now nah, I'm not going to do it because that's a big point next week. All right. Thank you, Lord, for this. At the end of every message. Whether you agree with it or it's understandable or not, the one thing that you can't that we can make sense of is is this. So even if I said stuff that's just nonsensical, doesn't make sense, you disagree with it, the one thing that all believers can agree on is what this means. Amen. And this is because Jesus 
the night that he was before, the, before he was crucified, was with his apostles, his disciples, and he said that he broke bread, gave it to them, poured wine, and he, they didn't understand what he was talking about fully, but he knew that they would eventually. And he said, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. Now, the whole point about doing this in remembrance of Jesus, it assumes that you believe in Jesus, you're living for Jesus, and you're remembering why you do what you do because of what he did. So this is the part where in, in our church, this is only reserved for those who have made a profession of faith clearly, baptize all of it. We connect those two. We connect those. This is for those who genuinely believe in the Lord, not for people who are just intellectually thinking about it. And the, and the reason why is because the Bible says you will condemn yourself to judgment if you are not a genuine believer and you participate in this. So this is the only part of that's not you that we'd ask you to abstain from. But for those of us that it is true, if nothing else makes sense, this does. Is that Jesus' body was broken. These are his words. My body is broken so that you, paraphrasing, so that you would not be. Died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And his body was broken like he broke the bread. So we take this in memory of that. This juice represents also his blood that was shed on our behalf. We know that the Roman soldier, after Jesus died, stuck a spear in his side. And it said blood and water came gushing out. His blood was shed so that you and I would not stand before God and spend eternity shedding our own blood, being punished by God. So we do this in remembrance of our Lord we drink. Father, thank you for, thank you for your word. Thank you for the things that the progressive revelation that you reveal in time about your word. I pray that in, throughout the course of this series, but in particular the next two weeks, my assumption, Lord, is that you will allow me to be here to teach these next two weeks in Genesis 3. I pray that you would help us make the right connections and to see this clearer, not so that the speaker is impressive, but that your word is impressive, so that we are further blown away by you. And even if we can't answer some questions, may we be, may we be blown away by the things that we can understand. Thank you for your grace and for everyone who's here today in the, in the dome and watching online. Lord, help us to remember our truth. Help us to be grown and own, take ownership of our faith. For your word says, what, what, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What does it profit a Christian to come to church, agree, and leave and forget? May what's true be the truth that we live for. In your name we pray. Amen. 
All right, we'll enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Uh, two quick things, though. We've, uh, you've gotten emails. We've had a couple of people that have had kids, and uh, the meal train is looking real light. So let's not be a keep warm and well-fed church, but can we sign up and let's get those folks some food? This is what we do as a church. The, the money that you would spend today for lunch, use that to give a meal to the people who have had children. It's, it's a challenge when you first have a child. So that list, at least as of the other day, was, was, was blank. So I'm hoping that we will sign up and fill that up so that, the, so that Nahaliel, his family, that Pedro and Yannetti, so that they can have meals brought to them. Let's, let's, let's not be a keep warm and well-fed church, but let's warm and feed the people in our church because they're a part of us, all right? Thank you.